What helps refugees succeed? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Sabine L. Chidiak. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Sabine L. Chidiak. Sabine joined the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2017, and she is the Educational Programs Manager, responsible for organizing and executing engaging educational programs for participants across Canada. Before that, for over four years, she worked as a senior policy advisor to Canadian federal ministers on issues relating to citizenship and immigration. Today, she continues to write and speak about immigration policy. She holds a bachelor's in political science from the University of Toronto, and a master's in political science from the University of Western Ontario, and she is a graduate of both the Atlas Network's MBA for Think Tank Management and its Think Tank Leadership Academy. You can catch some of her writing in places like Policy Options and Adam Smith Works. Sabine, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks so much. And it's kind of funny, I guess, because... I mean, I'm welcoming you, but you're always here in the background, right? You are the producer of The Curious Task as well. So how's that been producing me? Has it been a pain or, or has, has it been okay? Oh, it's just it's just terrible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's been wonderful. Honestly, the past year, and actually it's been a little bit over a year now, has been incredible. Uh, I'm biased, but I think we have one of the best podcasts out there. Uh, and it's been a real pleasure just hearing from all these amazing guests uh, and working with you and Matt and everybody to make this podcast happen. And yes, I'm always in the background, always listening. You know, every every episode everybody's been listening to, I've been there, but in the background. So it's kind of fun to be uh, actually on the podcast this time, talking about a topic that I really love. Right. I think it's been great too. And I think you and I will probably do another bonus episode at some time in the future for, for all our listeners. So that's a teaser, everyone listening. But, but of course, for now, Sabine, our question with you as guest instead of producer um, is is what helps refugees succeed? And I think before we get too deep into that conversation, uh, it's important to define what we're talking about, of course, which means getting into some specific terminology and categories. So at first I thought, and you correct me if I'm wrong, it's important to distinguish between the regular immigration processes and the refugee discussion, is it not? Yes, of course. So can you ex- can you explain to our listeners then w- what is the main difference? Is, for instance, a regular immigrant someone who's going to just apply to the Canadian government agency and go from there? Uh, what's the big difference between refugees and, quote unquote, normal immigrants? So um, all immigrants are, are important to the prosperity of Canada. Um there's no big difference between economic uh, immigrants and refugees in that respect, but there are different programs in Canada. Um, you know, the, the major one is our economic immigration, uh, which is mostly managed under the express entry scheme. Um, but then there's the other side of immigration, which is humanitarian immigration uh, that Canada is well known around the world for. And that is broken down, which if you don't mind giving me a few minutes to talk about the differences between the uh, you know, refugees, uh, refugee programs. So it's really important, I think, that we understand that before we go forward. Uh, so you've got your economic immigrants, and there's so many different programs under that uh, scheme. So, um, so we're not going to talk about that today. Uh, but if you're interested, I really encourage people to get to know their immigration 
system better in Canada and, and take a look online and see the different programs. Before we move on, though, then, and, and I agree with you, we, that would take us down an entirely different rabbit hole. Maybe we'll do what, what is economic immigration is a different episode. But but let, let's just go through one example. So like think, take of a case study. So I'm for in, for instance, and of course, you correct me if I'm wrong. I'm a, a, a Londoner. I, I live in England and I want to, to, to move and work in Canada. I, am I at that point an economic uh, uh, immigrant? Am I, do I fall into that category? What was what would my case study look like applying and getting into Canada? Roughly, of course. I mean, I know we can't get into too many specifics, but but it, first of all, is that the right place to start? And can you walk us through that? Yeah. So if you're if you're a person in, in England uh, and you want to immig- immigrate to Canada, you're certainly able to do that. Uh, you'd have to uh, meet certain requirements under the Express Entry uh, scheme. And in, within Express Entry, it's not a program; it's it's a pathway. Uh, it, it allows for three pathways uh, in particular in which you can in, come to Canada. It really depends on what your profession is. Uh, there's different uh, numbers associated with different professions. You have to qualify under one of the programs. Uh, to qualify under one of the programs, you have to have certain uh, education, you have to have certain language uh, abilities, um, and it really helps that you if you if you have a job offer from a Canadian organization. Uh, but you can still immigrate here as an economic immigrant without that. Uh, and if you have, uh, if you sort of score high on the points system in Canada uh, under Express Entry, you could be here in six months. Okay. So it's actually a great program. Uh, I think that the Canadian government has done a good job in maintaining it and creating it and maintaining it uh, on the economic side. So it's a it's a good thing it it's a good thing it exists I guess as you said it's a good program but 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 nevertheless I guess it's it's the best for people who do qualify unfortunately it's, it's not like a free immigration program it's if if we need definitely not it, it's if we need for instance just throwing an example out there software engineers or something the government determines there's an economic need for that these are the kinds of people that might score high for instance if I'm understanding you correctly that's right and definitely uh, the need for certain professions is important uh, in these considerations. For example, the provincial nominee program in Canada uh, depends is dependent on what provinces think is important to them at that time in terms of employment. Like, what do they have that they need in that province? And then they will extend invitations to people uh, for permanent residency based on that. And yeah, so so occupational need is very important in our in, in Canadian immigration, economic and I did interrupt you saying so, you're just about to go into the, the case study. So, so I'm sitting there in, in London, I guess I go to a government portal and, and then do what? Just apply and then I hear back from them or? or... Yeah, so there's it's a long process. Uh, you have to pay a little bit of money, not too much, though, nothing nothing too onerous. Um, so you just fill out the application. And if people tell you that you need to consult it, they're wrong. It's really easy to do. <laughs> so uh, you don't need to do all of that extra stuff. It's really easy to submit an application. So all you have to do is... is uh, collect the right documentation. Uh, you have to do medicals, you have to do uh, criminality screening. So there's, there's, there's things that the government needs from you. And that takes some time and effort to get together. Once you have all that together, it's uh, fairly straightforward. You, you apply on, everything's online. Uh, they might ask you for uh, additional documentation. They might be a little suspicious of some documentation that, you, that you've given them. So they'll come back to you and get you to submit that, resubmit that, or submit some additional information really depends on the program that you go with. Uh, so it's very case specific. Uh, and visa officers are really good at, um, at processing these. So, uh, you know, Canadian civil servants in the visa processing unit are great. They do very good work and very important work. And they do try to do it as quickly as possible uh, and make sure that everybody gets a chance to immigrate to Canada if they have the right uh, things that it takes to 
uh, qualify for each program. So that's economic immigration. And of course, this is very complex and subtle. I don't want to simplify too much. But is it fair for me to say that our listeners should keep in mind moving forward that economic immigration is differentiated by from what we're talking about later from the fact at the end of the day, if the government A says there's a need for someone like you and B, you score high, congratulations, you're an economic immigrant. Again, I don't want to simplify too much, but but is yeah. that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. It's fair to say that if you haven't committed a crime and you don't have uh, some communicable disease that will hurt Canadians, then uh, you're pretty much a shoe in to immigrate to Canada. So, so now that's differentiated from, as you said, that's economic immigration. Now there's the refugee discussion. So b- before we get into some of the specific types of, of refugees, and like I said, we will dive into that, go ahead at a high level and tell us what, what, dis- what immediately distinguishes that from economic immigration. Well, it's much harder to come to Canada as a refugee than economic immigrant. You have to prove that you are a refugee. Um, often the way that you do that is you have to get a designation from uh, international body like the United Nations or the country that you have uh, gone to uh, to seek refuge. Uh, so before you even start the process, you have to be designated as a refugee. So so hold on. So I really want to emphasize this point. So so let's be clear. So in this case, you cannot approach the Canadian government and say, hey, I'm a refugee. You need effectively a stamp from a third party, I guess, to say, OK, this person's a refugee. No, you can do that. You can if you have the means to travel to Canada and show up at a port of entry and uh, file a refugee claim as an asylum, you are able to do that. Uh, and it's not like a market against you or anything. They will process your refugee claim regularly as they always would. Uh, and then you will we'll get a determination as quickly as they possibly can get it. But if I'm sitting in a different country and I am either going from over one border from from one country to another, let's say, and, I, and I've been displaced because of war or whatever the case may be, and I'm I'm a refugee in, in the real sense, uh, you still aren't considered a refugee by the Canadian government in wherever you are, Syria, let's say, for example, until you're designated one. Yes, yeah, so you've got to be designated one. You also have to show that you have uh, that you're facing uh, an immediate danger from your country of origin. Uh, it helps that you've left your country of origin because you can't say that you're in danger when you're still there. Uh, there's a lot of uh, like smaller details as well that go into and depends again on how, which program you choose. And I can talk to you a little bit more about the different programs. Okay. Wow. Okay. So that's, that's the first step, I guess, as you said, you need to be designated a refugee and that, that already has criteria that people face. So that's very interesting in and of itself. And you said that the United Nations is involved as well. There's a specific body that, that takes care of this stuff. Yeah. The uh, UNHCR are the ones sort of that, that create the camps that you find refugees living in for the most part. There's a lot of uh, camps that are informal. Uh, Syrians were in informal camps in Lebanon that weren't really run by the United Nations, but they were also were in, in Jordan uh, in camps that were run by the United Nations. So they run the, the, the camps. Uh, they set up the centers where they actually process refugees' uh, claims or applications. or sort of just, When you show up to this camp and you say, I'm a refugee, and they'll sit you down and ask you. They want you to prove to them that you are a refugee. There may be a, there may be a war happening in your country. <laughs> There may be something going on. Everybody knows about it, but you have to show them that you actually have a legitimate fear for your life for them to accept you as a refugee in the first place. Uh, And once they've given you that stamp, then you're eligible to come to another country or stay in the country that you fled to. Wow. Okay. So that's already pretty crazy. It is. The process is very onerous. Uh, And let's not forget that people that are refugees are leaving quickly. They don't have time or the foresight sometimes to think, 
oh, maybe I should rummage through all of my 5,000 documents. Right. L- let me let me let me just pop up my cell phone and, and go to the, you know, the UN website or the Canadian government website and make sure I hit all the bullet points. I'll, exactly. I'll take these documents as, as that cruise missile is heading towards my village. Exactly. You're getting out quickly and you may not be taking your the right documents that the United Nations or the country that you want to apply to is asking you for. Now, there's ways around this uh, in that sometimes uh, there's people that can get them for you. Uh, or those databases that you can go to, but it is very difficult. So your task becomes even more difficult with the fact that you don't, you may not have the documentation documentation that you need. Uh, you may not have the any like many. There's many things that the you're asked for that you may have left behind. Uh, and also, the government isn't going to be the government that you left isn't going to be very forthcoming if you give them a call to get some information from them. Uh, you know, and even even when the United Nations. Uh, tries to get that information they're not very forthcoming uh, because they don't want to admit that there's a problem for first of all and uh, second of all they just don't care they're like in the middle of the civil war so they don't have time for this so it's very difficult right and, and it's something you, you we have uh, we sped past it there and I, I made a note here in my paper to, to make sure to ask you after you made your statement there but it was the um the point that you can't be recognized as a refugee if, if i heard this correctly correct me if i'm wrong you can't be recognized as a refugee if you're still in your country so if there's a civil war for instance and, and two factions are, are, are fighting you it's hard to get recognized as a refugee there are some cases where uh people are like airlifted out of the country like the yazidis for example the yazidis uh fled to the top of a mountain basically because they were being slaughtered uh and they were hoping that people would come pick them up sort of in a chopper like from the country that they're in uh, but that's an exceptional case. And uh, in Canada, the minister has a lot of power to uh, to direct public policy when it comes to this. So if he thinks that there's an, there's a he or she thinks that there's a direct danger to the people uh, and they're still there and he has evidence of this, uh, they can go in, uh, in when they're in the, in the country. But usually for the most part, in order to show that you actually have a, a reasonable fear for your life, you will have to leave the country. Okay, so other other than direct ministerial action or a specific foreign policy issue, other than these exceptions, it's hard to find. Other than that, it's hard to find a pathway to, to becoming a refugee if you're still in that that territory, that geography that you're trying to flee from. Yes. Okay. Correct. Wow. And another layer to the story as we go through this. So we're going to add more for our listeners too. So it seems there's a distinction, and this is what you were alluding to before, um, between now refugee pathways. There's two broad categories from my understanding, from what I've read. Um, the government-assisted refugee bucket, if you will, and then the private-sponsored refugee. So let, let's talk about the government-assisted refugee for, first. So so what does that look like? Uh, is it kind of what already we've been talking about, or, or is how, how does that work if you're a government-assisted refugee? So government-assisted refugees are refugees that are entirely supported by the government when they first come to Canada. So they're chosen by, as I said before, uh, institutions like the UNHCR, uh, and the UNHCR then refers them to the government of Canada for resettlement. Once they've checked every box that the UNHCR needs them to check. Uh, and the government, once they arrive in Canada, usually supports them for up to one year, or sometimes more if they have special needs. Um, and that includes accommodation, clothing, uh, food, help in finding employment, and other services that may be required by the refugee. Uh, that help and support comes in very many different ways. And when it comes to government assisted refugees, uh, it's there's a lot more strain on the system to get these uh, sorts of help from the government. So, um, you know, if you want to go to a language class, for example, it's going to be a wait. You're not going to be able to just walk in and start your courses. It's going to it's going to be take a while because there's so much demand. 
so that's the government assisted refugee. So, so just so I'm clear on that. So basically, again, case study, I'm a government assisted refugee, I come to Canada, uh, are, are there caseworkers and social workers that work with me to check in with me? Or is there an agency that handles this in different provinces that make sure I'm getting assistance for up to a year? How, how does that work? Basically, as you said, you're, you're directly being assisted by the government, you're, you're sort of under their 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 care at that point. So is, is that pretty much what it is? Yeah, there are people you can go to, but you have to remember that those people are under a lot of strain uh, in terms of uh, caseloads. So they're helping so many people at the same time. So you're not going to get that individual help and attention that you may need because they are uh, so overburdened with cases that they have to deal with. So that's, that's already a problem. And then you get to uh, the social aspects of, of like learning how to speak or getting employment uh, assistance, those programs are also overburdened in every problem. So, so basically what happens is, you know, you, they, may, they may at least ensure when, when you arrive here as a government assisted refugee that you, you have a place to stay and sleep, etc. You might get the basics sorted out. But at that point, as you said, cultural integration, uh, you know, finding English language courses, uh, someone to show you around, that kind of stuff. If you're directly under the, the, uh, the care of the government or you're directly reliant on them for assistance, as you said, the system's pretty overloaded in that area too. Yeah, and unfortunately, sometimes uh, you end up in a situation where the government sort of sticks you in a hotel for months, as we saw uh, happen with many Syrian refugees. Um, yeah, so they put you in a hotel and then people say, oh, look at these people. They are a scourge upon society, taking over this hotel and just not leaving and not getting a job. Well, I have news for those people. They can't. <laughs> right. Yeah. A lot <laughs> of people difficult. don't know that, right? When they're, when they're reading a media report about a, a hotel load of refugees or something like that, or a block of people that come over, that's an excellent point. People don't understand that. No, no, they've been put there and they've been told, stay here. We'll, we'll start taking care of you if and when we have time. Yeah. And uh, refugees really don't want to be in those hotels. They want to move on with their lives. They want to put their kids in school. They want to try and get a job. They want to learn some English because they are not very happy being cooped up. Uh, with hundreds of other people in a building where they don't really have any uh, liberty to undertake any opportunities or just the life that they want to lead in their in their new home. So we've asked, we've done the right thing. We've brought them out of harm's way. We've brought them to Canada. We've welcomed them uh, to a Kane family, and then we've stuck them in a hotel. That's not very helpful. Right. Yeah. And anyone listening who's been stuck in a in a in a room with two queen size beds and maybe a family of five or six knows how that that might be fun for a couple nights but as you said if you're if you're waiting for someone else on the outside to move you to the next step that that's pretty tough after a while for sure i mean so so uh, okay so that's the government assisted refugee discussion of course we'll come back to that but let's move to the other side it seems there's a different category privately sponsored refugees of course there's subcategories it seems in this discussion but at but at a high level so a privately sponsored refugee is simply someone who who what is is not a refugee to this country under the government it's just a private citizen or group is that really what we're talking about here so private sponsored privately sponsored refugees are refugees who have been sponsored by a sponsorship agreement holder and i'm going to call them saws uh, but they could also be uh sponsored by groups of five or the short form is g5s and community sponsors, and the short form for that is CSs, but um, I'll say the whole words for those ones because I won't be mentioning them too often. Um, so refugees, uh, these are, refugees have been chosen by the group or individual who's undertaking the sponsorship. Um, so the, these, re these refugees still go through a process with the government to make sure that they are meeting admissibility requirements, uh, but they are oftentimes chosen by the sponsorship agreement holder who wants to bring them to Canada. Uh, and they still have to be approved by the UNHCR 
uh, saying uh, put that stamp on them that they are refugees. So could I become a sponsorship agreement holder? Again, I'm just trying to do case studies. So like, could I become a sponsorship agreement? So how would I do that? I like, I just if you want to do it as an individual, you'd have to find four other people, and you could become a G5. So you could become a group of five a sponsor, uh, because that's just five or more Canadian citizens or permanent residents who decide to come together and sponsor a refugee. And they work together to raise the funds to support them in the refugees' first year in Canada. So if you were to find four other people that really want to make a difference, you can do that. You could even do that if you if you know somebody, uh, if you are if you are from that country uh, where there where there are many refugees fleeing, uh, you can identify somebody that you even know. Uh, and if they've been approved, then uh, you can undertake that sponsorship yourself so you can do that or you can create a sponsorship uh, agreement holder group so if you, you can become a saw sponsorship agreement holders are usually larger organizations they're like the archdiocese or community group uh, that has signed an agreement with the federal government that promises to financially and emotionally support a refugee for the entire first year that they live in canada uh, and sometimes as i said before with the government refugees they need a little bit extra time uh, after past the one year, and uh, you, you should be able to do that as well. I'm going to use the example of like the Anglican Archdiocese because they're very active in this uh, in Toronto. They raise money amongst their parishioners and through drives and, and all of that. Um, and once they have that money, uh, they submit a, uh, an application to the government saying, here's the money that we have that will uh, allow us to support uh, these folks for the per- first year at least. Uh, they're gonna they're going to rent them a townhouse or a condo or something. They're going to furnish that apartment. Uh, they're gonna make sure that they're eating properly for the whole year. They're gonna help them uh, put their kids in school. Uh, they're gonna help them figure out where the doctor is. They're gonna help them figure out where the the nearest grocery store is, uh, where the nicest park is in the community. I'm talking like small things to big things. They're gonna be there for them every step of the way. They're going to get that individualized experience that they that people who are starting a whole new life in another country really really need. So all, effectively, very personal caseworkers dedicated to you, almost. And I don't want to say caseworker because it sounds detached, but I'm trying to I'm I'm having a harder time finding the word. But these are people that can mentor you. They can they can work with you. That they're, they're community members that are helping integrate you into the community. Right, exactly. And um, most of the time, they are living near you, so they're like your neighbors. They are literally your community. They are your neighbors. They are uh, your. They become your friends, uh, and they're always there for you. Some people even live with their sponsors. Uh, they just they have an apartment in their house. Uh, I could talk to you a little bit about some stories like that and how that works out. Uh, and and you just become a part of their family, part of their friend group, and really the whole community sort of looks out for you. You become the charge of the community until you feel like you are comfortable sort of breaking out on your own, uh, and that's sometimes right away. And other times you need a little extra time uh, to hang out with people and talk English, uh, make sure that you get your language up to par. Uh, sometimes you need a little extra help finding a job because perhaps your occupation that you had in your past life uh, in your last country, uh, you know, doesn't really, you can't really find a job in that sector in Canada. So maybe you need to retrain, uh, you need to go back to school. Uh, it's really hard to figure out how to do all of that in a country that you have never visited before in many cases. Uh, that you didn't really have time to sit down at a computer and research because you were at a refugee camp for 10 years. So it's not like you have the luxury uh, that economic immigrants often have that you can prepare yourself for your new home. So those people, the sponsorship agreement holders, they take on that responsibility and they recruit others from the community to help them as well. 
Uh, and you don't have to become a sponsorship agreement holder to help these people. Um, refugees need furniture. Uh, refugees need someone to talk to. If you know the language that they speak, you can just go and hang out with them at their house. That's being part of that community just as much as being one of the sponsorship agreement holders. Uh, just to donate your furniture, talk to them, invite them out, uh, just help them integrate better into the community. That's really important. Uh, but I can talk about SAWS all day, but I, I should talk very quickly about uh, G5s and, and, and community groups because uh, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about them when I talk about solutions, hopefully later on in, in the conversation. Yeah, for sure. Let, let's get into that because I think I definitely get the general idea about these sponsorship agreement holders and people that can, you know, get get together as a group and make sure these people integrate in. But if but there's if there's more specifics we should know about about G5s, groups of five sponsors and community sponsors, let's definitely get into that now. Yeah. So really quickly, a G5 is just five or more Canadian citizens or permanent residents who sponsor refugee together, and they raise the funds and do all the things that I said earlier that the SAWS do. Um, but they're not like a, they're not like an organized organization that has put, put come together to, for this reason. They're just people who got together and did this. So, so just to be clear, if I can be a sponsorship agreement holder individually, so I can just go become that uh, under the government's eyes, at least. Or alternatively, I can get together with five people and become a G5. Like you said, there's nothing beyond that other than five people getting together, kind of thing. And a community uh, sponsor is a community group like an organization, an association, or a corporation that sponsors refugee and agrees to financially support them for a certain amount of time. Uh, usually that's the first year of their settlement in Canada as well. Um, and, you know, I, I just wanted to touch a little bit on the history of the private sponsorship program in Canada, because now you know what it is. But just to know that it originated in 1979, this is not something that just happened yesterday. This is something that started in 1979 as a response to the massive numbers of Southeast Asian refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Uh, and in two years at that time, Canadians sponsored 35,000 people from Southeast Asia, uh, and they haven't stopped sponsoring refugees since. Uh, and we're seeing a similar willingness in that initial voluntary action to help in response to the Syrian crisis, to the Rohingya crisis, to every other crisis that you can think of around the world. Uh, this has been happening since 1979, and Canadians have not stopped. Uh, and, and in fact, the program, like the number of SAWS has grown exponentially, uh, and they're always fighting with the government to allow them to bring more people into Canada. So it's a pretty spectacular program. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I guess a lot of people hear about quote unquote refugees in the media, or they hear about immigrants, but you're right. Like, I mean, I don't think most people think or have been informed deeper on the topic like you said i i certainly didn't know when i started preparing for the, for this episode in this chat with you that that this has been happening actually for a long time this isn't some some thing someone just decided within the last five years let's try this because of such and such crisis of course the media and and the way we we think about things sometimes is centered around a certain crisis so the syrian refugee crisis for example but but the methods to be able to help these people as you said have been around a very long time and, and i think that's just fascinating yeah and it was definitely a response from people they were worried about what was happening in Southeast Asia and they got together and they figured out what they could do. Uh, and it's, and they've been, uh, you know, fighting to bring refugees to Canada here ever since. And I actually think that's a great place to take our break. So we'll do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Sabine Elchidiak. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curiousTask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, Ken Dubian, and Chris Rondolo. 
Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Sabine El Chidiak today. So, Sabine, I think obviously the, the first half was very good. I mean, this is your area of expertise. I, I think it was great that we went into the different types of refugees. We, we uh, distinguished that from refugees, from economic immig- immigration. So I think that was great, too. Um, before we move on to a couple of other questions and, and some other things I have noted here, um, there's a term we didn't really use in, in the in the first half, but when you talked about getting people uh, integrated into communities, showing them around, and then basically, if if people go the private route as as a refugee, uh, for them to effectively have like these community mentors for them, you've written about this and referred to it as like the civil society angle to one of the main benefits of this. And again, uh, we don't need to overtalk the point because we covered a lot of it, but but that is pretty much in some of your writing what you mean by the civil society benefit of the private side, right? Is that is that you're actually integrating into civil society at that point, not integrating into government hotel society, I guess would be the contrast. I guess that's the main benefit, right? Absolutely. It's, uh, it's a safety net uh, for you when you uh, get to Canada that you don't have to worry so much about getting that help that you need, that you might need. You don't even know what you need yet. Um, it's, it's important that you feel like you have that safety um, so that you don't get sort of lost uh, amongst everyone else and you, you don't fall into some sort of crack um, and that you can't really get out of because you've been in Canada for several years. You haven't gotten the support that you need. Uh, and now it's getting more and more difficult for you to learn English or French. It's getting more and more difficult for you to, um, you know, get a job uh, in a field that you're qualified in or get qualified for a job. All these things, the longer it uh, takes for you to integrate, the harder it becomes over time. So for you to have that safety net right when you get to the country is so important. Uh, And I I really do think that civil society is the way that it works the best. And, you know, just so that I can clear up what I'm what I mean by civil society before we go on, um, that's just the like total range of voluntary social institutions that derive from the free association uh, and cooperation of individuals in pursuit of a common interest. And if that isn't the definition of SAWS, I don't know what is. You know, these are just people coming together voluntarily. No one's forcing them to do it. The government hasn't mandate, ma- mandated them. They just got together, raised money, decided to do this um, in pursuit of a common interest, which is to help people get to Canada. So in other words, civil society is like our non-governmental, non-commercial interactions, really. It's, it's on, the, on, a, on a more general scale. So it's, it's our families, religious institutions, it's our, it's our social clubs. Um, you know, it's the disapproving glance that you give somebody who does something socially unacceptable. <laughs> it's right from that to uh, actually cutting together, putting a, a group together. Uh, so... You know, it's just concerned citizens, in this case, it's just concerned citizens that have voluntarily come together based on a mutual motivation to help refugees succeed. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. And, um, you know, th- there there may be some people, uh, maybe not necessarily listening to this, but there may be some people out there that think to themselves, okay, like, this is all great, Sabine. Like, it's great that we talk about, you know, the refugee process, especially the, the pri- privately sponsored refugees. You know, it's great that people can come here. But, but you know, 
what does this all result in, right? Are these people successful? This is where you get the trope from some people where they say that this is all for nothing, that people can't come here and integrate properly. You know, there are these arguments out there. But but in my research and preparing for this, I, I noticed that, it, well, it turns out there are, you know, it turns out places like Canada do track success of refugees and immigrants, um, you know, and we do have Canada as a case study, there, there was something I, I, of course, ran into in my prep notes here called, called the Rapid Impact Evaluation, which is supposed to compare government and private sponsored refugees. I, I found this very interesting at, at high level. Why, why don't you take us through a couple of things that one will take away from, from this if they read it? Because I, I mean, I, again, I said, as I say, like I found it very interesting that this is tracked and it seems that things are going pretty well for a lot of the refugees. Yes, I'm glad you brought that up because I really do want to delve into this a little bit. Um, you know, there's, and, and of course, I want to talk about the qualitative um, results, but quantitative is important too, just so we can track these things. And I'm glad you brought up the uh, rapid impact evaluation because it is rare. I'm telling you, it is rare <laughs> that you get this kind of information from the government that quickly, right after uh, people arrive, like, the Syrians uh, uh, arrived, and then basically uh, within that ne that next year, they were already uh, putting together this information. And it's it's so important that we get this information right away, uh, and that we're we're asking refugees themselves for this information, and we're tracking it. And the Canadian government did that. Uh, they they published it as the Rapid Impact Evaluation. And if you look at it, you can see that this exceptional data, uh, this very rare data, you don't see every day. Uh, is extremely useful. And I'd like to dive into it a little bit um, just so that our listeners can can see the the clear distinction between PSRs and and the government assisted refugees or the privately sponsored refugees and government assisted refugees. Uh, so I'm just gonna throw out some numbers that are that I found important. It's a huge report, but I, I just picked some that I thought were very indicative of the point I'm trying to make. Um, and, that, and that's like, for example, uh, almost 70% of government-assisted refugees said they had help in learning how to shop for food, compared to 83% of privately sponsored refugees. 54% of government-assisted refugees had help in buying clothes, furniture, and other essentials, compared to 72% of privately sponsored refugees. Only 38% of government-assisted refugees were shown how to find a doctor on their own, compared to 63% of privately sponsored refugees. 55% uh, of government-assisted refugees said they encountered difficulties, that's more than half, in learning English and or French uh, and facing a language barrier uh, than when they first arrived compared to only 32% of privately sponsored refugees. That is a big difference. Uh, you know, in terms of contributions to the job market, over half of adult PSRs reported that they were currently employed in Canada. Uh, at 52%, 52.8% to be precise, compared to a staggering 9.7% of Syrian government-assisted refugees. Uh, and, and, you know, 82% of government-assisted refugees said they learned one of the official languages. Uh, learning one of the official languages was their main barrier to finding a job compared to 53% of uh, privately sponsored refugees. Again, big difference. Um, and, and just one last stat that I think is important, 32% of Syrian government-assisted refugees indicated the fact that they are still settling, adjusting to life in Canada as a reason why they hadn't found a job yet, compared to only 18% of privately sponsored refugees uh, that indicated settlement ability as a barrier to employment. And these are uh, very basic, very important things that people, individuals need to be able to settle and become successful uh, in Canada and anywhere. And and I'm, I'm using this example of Syrians, but like 
this kind of like everything I'm talking about right now can be uh, attributed to any other refugee population. Syrians are not distinctly different. Uh, they've had very similar experiences to other refugees from other parts of the world. Um, and so it's not like private sponsorship works for Syrians, but maybe not for Rohingyas or something. I mean, community involvement, I think if you were to poll it, the numbers are going to be very And, and one, one of the most astonishing ones, I mean, those are all important stats, but one of the ones that one of the ones that really jumped out to me was was the ones that, um, that talked about whether the, uh, the that compared, I should say, the government sponsored refugees, to the privately sponsored refugees and whether or not they had a job after one year. You said it was 52 yeah. percent. For the privately sponsored refugees and nine point something percent for the government one that that that's that's very astonishing and again of course we we hope that you know after two years that survey might look a little different but you'd probably see a similar proportion let let's pretend you know it's twenty percent for government or like you know sixty seventy for privately sponsored in two years again I don't know if that's the case I'm just saying pretend that's still very that's staggering to to, to see that yeah. and a job sometimes of course is. is an indication of uh as all the things you said that's why i, I kind of singled it out you know it, that is an indication of being able to communicate with someone perhaps learning the language integrating into the community if you have a job you probably are making money to bring it back to a home to to, to spend money on other things to do things with your kids so to me like a, a having a job is sort of a, a symbol almost a, a steady job is almost a symbol of, of settling uh, to some degree so so that was very interesting to me just to see that big difference 52 to 9 wow yeah it's a symbol uh you're absolutely right that it's a symbol of, of of what you said, but it it's also just the it gives you freedom. It allows you to break out on your own, maybe open a business, do whatever it is that you want to do, uh, and not have to be at the mercy of uh, like you know a, a government program or anything else. You just do what you want to do. You put your kids in whatever school you want. You buy a house. You're able to you know come and go as you please. You can get a car, you can get a job that's a little farther away because you're able to buy a car. Uh, maybe that job pays a little bit more. You know, all of these things are so important. Uh, employment is is indeed a symbol, but also just something that frees you as an individual and frees your whole family. Right. It also allows you to build up your own community too, right? If there's a couple of different families that are of your origin that, that are in the same sort of situation and you know, people got jobs, people got their own places to live, you know, things are going well, right? You might not have, you know, you're, you're in a better situation, you might, you might not have a, a golden palace just yet, but at least that's a start. And you could start, you know, again, you're integrating to the community that's existed, but you're also creating community with other people, perhaps. So that's nice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you, you said earlier that uh, maybe down the line, the numbers change. And I just want to say, um, you know, in other studies that, that I've looked at, uh, after 10 years, the government's refugee numbers go up significantly, like they are able to integrate after a few years. Ask them in 10 years, they've gotten jobs, they're fine, uh, but also, but not at the same level even then as privately sponsored refugees. But it is significantly uh, better. And I, I don't want to say that it's all bad news for government-assisted refugees. It's not. You know, the outcomes were not that bad in, in that study that we were talking about. And, you know, the report also shows that 94% of Syrian government-assisted refugees have taken English classes, which would particularly come in handy if they had the support system that uh, PSRs have. 80% uh, of Syrian guards know how to use public transportation, which significantly improves their mobility uh, and ability to engage with civil society and get a job, and perhaps one that pays even more because it is a little bit out of the way. Uh, and 77% of Syrian guards indicated they were happy or very happy with their lives in Canada. Uh, and 90% of Syrian guards and PSRs report having a somewhat strong or very strong sense of belonging to Canada. And I think that's a tribute uh, to Canadians. 
as well as the as as the refugees because Canadians are accepting refugees. They are uh, allowing them to live fulfilling and happy lives. And that's great. And and in one of your talks, you did note that uh, the, the Canadian private sponsorship program for refugees is, is highly regarded in recent years, countries like our, I think you said, Argentina, Australia, Germany, Ireland, Italy, New Zealand, Switzerland, and the UK have experimented with sponsorship programs based on the Canadian model. That, that's very interesting. You said, And you did note that the US also started a program in the late 80s, but it, but it was short lived and unfortunately yet, yet to be revived. Yeah, it's, it, it almost it was almost revived under Obama and then it wasn't <laughs> huge disappointment uh, and I don't think there's there's uh, much chance of it happening under a Trump administration um, but you know you never know what happens in the future uh, but it's there like the Canadian model is very highly regarded as you said so if the United States was ever interested in reviving this it, there's a program just like so close to them that they can model it off of and, and other countries have indeed done that uh, so the UK uses the Canadian model um, as an inspiration for their program. And between July 2016 and July 2019, uh, they resettled nearly 400 refugees through this program. Um, Australia has two programs under their privately sponsored refugee scheme, uh, and they seem to be working very well. Uh, and I believe that the stronger, stronger civil society is, the greater the positive outcomes for society and for individuals um, become. And if we're doing that in more countries, and they're basing that on the Canadian model, and that's great. And hopefully that's not the list that I'm going to be listing for you if we talk about this again in a year. Hopefully there's more countries that are interested in this uh, because you know, refugee issues never go away. There's always a crisis and there's always people in need. So it would be great if more people signed on. And, and you do you did note again in one of your talks, ways to help improve refugee success. So I just want to go through a couple of those. So one of the things that you talked about was that immigration levels should just shift to accept more private sponsored refugees. I mean, I'm not sure if we need to over talk that one, but but you but if you were sitting there with the, with the minister again of immigration and you said because of course that's what you used to do, the one thing you'd probably be saying is let uh, more privately sponsored refugees in because it turns out there's a cap on this ultimately, there right? Is, yeah. Um so let's talk about the cap, the most recent one. In, in 2020, um sponsorship agreement holders outside Quebec can only submit applications for 12,500 people. That's crazy. <laughs> That's a crazy small amount. There are 128 sponsorship agreement holders in Canada. For them, and, and, and we're not talking about 12,500 applications. We are talking about applications for 12,500 people. So every family, like there are families of four, five, or six, uh, those, are, those are counted as one, 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 right? So it's not 12,000 applications, it's 12,500 people. Right. This isn't 12,000 times an average family size of four is what you're saying. This is 12,000 people. Got it. Okay. Right. So this is 2,000 more than uh, in 2019, but it's it's not, that's not a significantly larger amount comparatively to how many refugees there are in the world and to the capacity of Canada to accept more people. Not just the capacity of Canada, but the capacity of sponsorship agreement holders who are constantly lobbying the government uh, to let them have more applications. They don't want these caps. Right. That was actually going to be my follow-up question. See, that's very interesting, right? Is that it's not just a matter of, you know, uh, this is the cap and, and it's not really being filled. Is that there's actually pressure and demand to have that cap raised by the people doing this stuff. And the argument from the government uh, often is that they just don't have the capacity to process the applications. Now, perhaps that's true, okay? <laughs> there's There's a capacity issue uh, and I certainly don't want to make a case to like expand the state and make it, uh, you know, more bureaucratic and have more people processing things and having more levels of processing. Uh, 
But if they have an issue like that, it's possible to look at the numbers and see that privately sponsored refugees are, are doing really well. So perhaps shift the numbers a little bit around to allow for more privately sponsored refugees if you don't want to expand the number. I do think that we can expand the number more. Um, you know, we are expanding our immigration numbers every year. If you look at the levels plan of, uh, so there, it's important first before I, I go on to make a differentiation between the levels plan and caps. So you can, um, it's different how many applications you can you can submit to the government versus how many people are accepted. So the levels plan is how many people do we accept into Canada every year from the different uh, programs, uh, but th and that that's not the same thing as how many applications Canada can receive. Okay, so 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 just so I'm 100 clear, as you said, so the levels I should keep in mind as how many people can come in, and the cap is how many applications can be submitted. Right, exactly. And so um, going back to what I was saying earlier, so recently the in the refugee class, uh, the government assisted refugee admission has been increased. Uh, they've included the ad additional 250 spaces beginning in 2021 uh, for human rights advocates, journalists, humanitarian workers at risk. I think that's great. Uh, you, you know, put always more numbers is always better. Uh, but they are doing that through the government assisted refugee program. Why aren't they able to uh, process more applications for the privately sponsored refugees? Why are they not able to allow sponsorship agreement holders to submit more applications? Uh, they're allowing for 128 sponsorship agreement holders in Canada. Uh, it's just unreasonable to ask them to just do 12,500 when they have the resources. Um, I just don't like what I don't understand is if Canadians are willing to take that burden off government, <laughs> they're willing to raise that money. They're willing to do all of this great work. Why wouldn't we allow them to do it? Right. And I just want to I, I just want to reemphasize for everyone listening too, because we've covered so much ground here, which is great that we're still talking within that privately sponsored refugee bucket, right? As I'm listening to you, it makes me realize we're not you're not sitting here saying, hey, that government assisted refugee category, let's light that up. What you're basically saying is no, there's people through their private voluntary action that want to bring more people here and help them free and voluntary, and it's not allowed. Right. I mean it's allowed, but only uh with an arbitrary cap that uh, you know that the civil service or the or the political class gets to decide arbitrarily every year, you know they're not listening to their stakeholders. Their stakeholders are the sponsorship agreement holders and the refugees. They're not listening to them. Uh, they're just making caps that they think work, uh, and, and they're increasing some things and they're decreasing other things, or they're just uh, maintaining the status quo on other things, and that's just not acceptable. One of your other recommendations is. Uh... You encourage people to get their communities more involved in sponsoring refugees and helping them settle. And of course, if you said that at the beginning of the conversation, someone might say to you, well, that, that's a lot of work. And of course, everything is easier said than done in life. But from everything I've been hearing from you and the way the way you've been describing it here it is actually is a little easier than one might think, right, to get together, for instance, and make a group of five. And, and if you have the time or, or the extra means to do this, it, it actually isn't as hard as one might might think right off the bat. This is completely doable, it sounds to me, and something that more people should be thinking about if they have the means and, and some extra time to do it. Uh, you don't have to raise thousands of dollars and, and create a sponsorship agreement, uh, become a sponsorship agreement holder, or even do the D5. Like, if you are able to do that, that's amazing. We need more of you. But even if you're just concerned about this, you can, instead of, uh, you know, if you have some money that you'd like to donate at Christmas or something, donate it to a sponsorship agreement holders organization. Uh, put it towards... Uh, buying furniture for people who are settling like sponsorship agreement holders need your help to make this stuff happen you can buy furniture if you know uh, 
a second or third language, uh, in some cases fourth, uh, you should go and have those conversations. Take take the the privately sponsored refugees out for lunch, speak with them, introduce them to your friends, uh, just so that they can practice their English. You know, these are very basic things that you can do as an individual in your community. Uh, and that is also civil society. It isn't just community uh, groups or organizations. It's just you, the individual, reaching out to another individual who needs your help within your community. Right. And th- there was a great case study about this. I know to talk about that. Um, this is not this is not a group of five. This is more of like a, an organization doing this. But nevertheless, there was a in Guelph. There was this this place called D- Danby Appliances. This company and the CEO has apparently sponsored over fifty refugee families already. And I think that article is actually from twenty nineteen, if I remember correctly, off the top of my head. So so that that again, like it's, it sounds crazy right off the bat, but I guess you get some momentum and you know what you're doing. And apparently, like a lot of them, you know. You, they have a place to work now, and, and he has a whole group of people working with him that are helping people come in, um, volunteers and other people that he works with, help people come in, integrate them with the community, set them up with a job. It's just so there's a lot of stuff happening in the background of society, I guess I could say, that people don't even know is happening every day. But turns out that this this gent, the CEO in Guelph with Danby Appliances, he's got tons of people coming over. The, the stuff is doable. And he's running a business on top of that. He's the CEO of a business. He's got a lots to do. successful business. There fact. you go. Exactly. <laughs> and and it, what's cool about that is that he gives refugees jobs at Danby for 90 days, as well as ESL training. Uh, but what's so cool about the 90 day thing is that he's not forcing them. Like he's, it's not like indentured servitude, right? Like I will sponsor. Actually, you that's a whole different episode we should talk work. about yeah. <laughs> that happens in Canada too, but we're not going to get into that right now. But he, he gives them the opportunity to just get their foot in the door in a Canadian uh, company so that they can put that on the resume. And if they like it, they can stay, but they only, they have 90 days uh, and they're able to do that. He and if if they want to leave before that, I'm sure he's not going to force them to stay. Uh, <laughs> and so you can customize uh, these experiences uh, based on your abilities. So this man had that ability to do this. The CEO had that ability to do this, and he's doing it. So uh, and he's helped so many people. He sort of changed their lives. And uh, that's a that's a sort of corporate story that I think is really important. And, and if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, an organization that I think is doing great work. I, I just heard about them. Um, so just to just to show you sort of uh, how the connections uh, develop in Canada through the private sponsored refugee program. So just in September, a group called Operation Refugees in Haida Gwaii uh, in British Columbia was formed by residents of Haida Gwaii and led, led by a woman called Bang Favreau. And guess who the newest members of this group were? Uh, the Assyrian family that had previously been sponsored by Haida Gwaii residents in 2016. So they, they sponsored this family recently um, and they, they arrived in September, but um, they ended up stuck in Prince Rupert for two days because of bad weather. And so somebody in Haida Gwaii sort of just reached out uh, to uh, somebody she knows uh, who lives in Prince Rupert. Uh, she called them. It was a person at a hotel who works at a hotel. She's a housekeeper there who was part of a Syrian family that the woman who called her had previously helped to sponsor. So that woman <laughs> now moved to Prince Rupert and was working in this hotel. So she reached out to this family who was had just arrived in Canada and it was in a very foreign place to them, didn't have anyone uh, there to meet them. She met them, she cooked them dinner, she made them feel at home. Uh, and then later on, they finally got to the to Haida Gwaii um, and, and the community was there waiting to, to welcome them. They had toys for their kids. They had Play-Doh. They had stuffed toys and Legos. Uh, and they helped make these kids feel more relaxed at home. 
Um, and, and later, one of the other Syrian families in the town brought over some Syrian food, like baked chicken, rice, salad, Syrian sweets, uh, just to make them feel more at home. Um, and, you know, that's, that's a really amazing story of not just sponsoring one family, helping them out for a year, and that's it. But this is like a family who was sponsored became the sponsors, sponsored another family. They ran into some issues. And then they ended up, uh, you know, being helped by somebody else who was sponsored. It's just like this amazing network of community help. Right. Yeah. And it's kind of actually ties back to what I was saying before is like, you know, like at that point, you know, you're not just joining a community, you're building your own community too. And then you're able to follow your own passions and figure out what you want to do about the problem. If, if you feel like after you've been helped brought over that, hey, other people can, you can help other people do that too. So, you know, our time's winding down a little bit here, but but one thing that I wanted to talk about real quick before we enter any formal wrap up or, or tie up the episode was zooming out a bit more. It seems that, of course, in, in the refugee discussion, there is this distinction between government assisted refugees and privately sponsored refugees. But if I remember correctly, actually, my family history, so I'm a, a 1.5 generation Canadian, my dad is actually an, an immigrant, my mom was born shortly after other people arrived from Italy. Um, if I remember correctly, my dad told me that uh, him and his family, when they were brought over from Italy, were privately sponsored by family that was already here. Now, they weren't refugees. So it seems to me that there was a lot more, and of course, you correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me there's a lot more access and different kinds of programs available for more private action for people to help immigrants of, of whatever stripe come to this country. I mean, w w when I heard this story, and then I also tie that back to what you're saying, I realized that it seems that we have that that gap even right now, just in general, to be allowed more private action, more voluntary action to help people come to the country uh, or bring over family, whatever the case may be. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think it's uh, very helpful to have the ability to have your, your family come and uh, to have your family sponsor you to come to Canada. Uh, that, and, and you don't necessarily have to be a refugee, as you said, with your the case of your family. And I'm really glad that you brought up a personal story on immigration, because I always like to say, like, we could talk about the numbers all day, all night, but immigration is an extremely personal uh, issue. It is something that affects pretty much everybody <laughs> in some way or another. Um, you know, this is so we, we have to keep the stories of our families alive just to remind people that these are individuals, they're not numbers. Uh, and there's so many different ways that people have been able to come to Canada over the years. So you you told your story about your family and I'll tell a uh, quickly story of my family. My parents immigrated to Canada from Lebanon in the 80s. Uh, they were not refugees either. They came through something called the Lebanese Project, which was just a program to allow uh, Lebanese people to uh, immigrate to Canada a little easier during uh, and after the Civil War. And they were able to be sponsored through that program by my mother's aunt. So, uh, and and when I when I first, so I'm really interested in this topic because of what I did for a living, but also because of my uh, parents' story, like I really care about immigration and, and making sure that people have a community to come to. Because when I first asked my parents, what was it that made your lives easier when you came to Canada? Like, how did you guys, how did you guys succeed? And they said, like, without even thinking about it, number one thing was that just having my mom's aunt there, <laughs> you know, and and her introducing them to the the larger Lovey's community. They met people that they uh, they could relate to. They met people that they could show them around. Uh, and that allowed them to find their first jobs. You, uh, they weren't the greatest jobs, but they were jobs that gave them money, gave them the ability to like move out of my aunt's place or, or whatever they had to do, uh, and start on this journey of their career. So it was, it was that, and they, they indicated that, and they weren't refugees. They were, uh, they were just people that wanted to make a better life for their family. 
and ended up that it worked out because then I was born in Canada and I, I ended up uh, working in immigration and now I write and talk about it. So like, that's a success story if you think about it. All the way, way. through. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, uh, and, and for them to indicate that, that is the number one thing that helped them when they first came to Canada, that's huge. Those are stories from families, not just numbers. And that's really important. Right. No, 100% for, for someone to, without hesitation, say, no, it just it helped that I had people to help me along. And it happened to be family or people in the community. That's huge, obviously. Yeah. And that's not it's not a unique story to myself and uh, potentially to your family. Uh, that's definitely the story of millions of Canadians uh, whose families start uncertain journeys to Canada and just need uh, and just need that safety net uh, of, of just humans that they get through programs like this. So yeah, definitely, as you were saying, and it's definitely helpful that people have family and communities and, and ways to integrate when, when they come to a new country. Um, you know, and again, that, that that gives more credibility and credence to this idea of the, the privately sponsored refugee. It, it seems that still we we face the situation where anytime there's a humanitarian crisis or even anytime, quite frankly, in general, it seems at least to me, people talk about immigration. Uh, the go-to for, in a lot of people's minds is just that the government should do more. So so how do we get people thinking in different ways about this? I mean, obviously, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it definitely seems you're not in the camp that we should always be saying the government should do more. So so, so how should we be thinking about this? Well, I mean, it's pretty clear that, um, you know, the government is doing something, uh, bringing refugees to Canada. But uh, from whatever, everything we've been talking about over the past hour, like, Obviously, uh, we, we have solutions that are outside of government. Um, and one thing that I want to just mention quickly is that, you know, private organizations and, and individuals and think tanks, academics, just people who are able to do more work on this, I really encourage them to do it. Uh, we have a lack of, uh, of numbers. We have a lack of research. We have a lack of policy recommendations from outside government on these issues, and they need to do more. And when they're doing more on this, and when you're thinking about it at home and, and, and thinking about it further, maybe taking on a project to write about it or something like that, we have to keep we have to ask ourselves rather than how can we get government to do more for refugees, we have to begin asking how can we get communities more involved in sponsoring refugees and helping them settle. We can always do more. The program is great, but there's more that we can do. We can make sure that uh, the red tape that stops you from uh, bringing people here through the private sponsored refugee program uh, faster, more efficiently and at large numbers is, is gone. There's so many things that we can do uh, to make things easier and more flexible um, and, and helps Canada and refugees uh, succeed, Canadians and refugees succeed better in this program. Uh, and we're not, we're just like, we could be doing so much more on that front. I think that's an excellent point. And with that, our, our time is, pr is pretty much wound down already. So um, let, let's go to our formal wrap-up. Sabine, I mean, you're, you're no stranger to this. You hear this every time we record an episode. You know we want to make sure that the guest has the last word. So let me ask you officially, you know, we've talked about a lot. Let's bring the episode full circle and the conversation full circle. Let's put a finer point on our exploration of the question. What do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what helps refugees succeed? Uh, so government institutions can't provide emotional support. Uh, people inevitably fall through the cracks. Uh, privately sponsored refugees are less likely to fall through the cracks because they have a direct connection to people who are voluntarily motivated to ensure they have a smooth transition uh, in their new life. So let's make it easier for civil society to sponsor and help these people rather than simply abandoning them to the system. Uh, it's better for refugees and it's better for Canada. Sabine El-Chidiak, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task as a guest. <laughs> thank you.
This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.